sit down and buckle up. It's time for the Pirate Monk Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. Oh, we're all queued up for a scintillating conversation with a fascinating guest. Before then, I think we probably ought to talk for 20 minutes about Nate, the weather. Nate, Nate, just Nate. We don't, we don't have time for this buffoonery today. We need to start talking. We need to go. Weather, cars, we're not doing Just stay tuned, listeners. We'll be right back with our conversation with a new friend across the pond. Hey, I want to jump in for a minute to say a word about our sponsor. Yes, it's true. We now have a sponsor on the Pirate Monk Podcast, and it's none other than LifeWorks Counseling. If you attended the National Retreat, Samson Society's National Retreat last year, then you already know that Roan and Eva and Roe Hunter are special people. A husband and wife and son, all of them licensed therapists, more than therapists, certified sex addiction therapists. Uh, When it comes to recovery from addiction and from betrayal trauma, uh, these people really know the territory. They're Christians, of course. They're also Samson people. Uh, So whether you are interested in attending one of their intensives that they run periodically for Samson guys and for uh, Sarah Society, or whether you would like to connect with them virtually for individual therapy, for couples counseling, or here's another option. If what you're really looking for is a recovery coach, they can actually connect you to somebody, not a licensed therapist, but an experienced coach through their peer-to-peer counseling program. Uh, To find out more, go to their website, lifeworks.ms that ms stands for mississippi Uh, that's where their three offices are located (laughs) but thanks to the magic of the world wide interweb they can help you no matter where you live that's lifeworks and their website again is lifeworks.ms And welcome back to the Pirate Monk Podcast. How privileged we are to have with us as our guest this week, the author of a brand new book that's getting a lot of attention. If you haven't picked it up yet, you need to order it, Non-Toxic, Non-toxic Masculinity. And the author is with us, Zachary Wagner, joining us from far, far away. Welcome, Zachary. Yeah, wonderful to be with you both. Looking forward to the conversation. Thanks to have. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Okay. You don't sound like you're from far away. I hear a little Midwestern, uh, 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 yeah, uh, yeah, pronunciation in your language. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah, Originally, I'm from the Chicagoland area, northwest suburbs of Chicago, Mm -hmm. uh, born and raised in the McHenry County, Crystal Lake area. Any any listeners are familiar. Mm -hmm. Um, And then did college and also some grad school also in the Chicagoland area at a couple of Christian schools around there. Um, and it was the our move across the pond, my wife and our kids in 2020 was actually my first experience ever living outside of Chicagoland. Oh, wow. wow. So you went okay. straight from Chicago to England? 
I sure did. Yeah. And okay. well, it took me, it took me a little under 30 years to do it, but uh, yeah, I, you know, and it's funny. I never thought of myself as kind of like a close to home personality, mm-hmm. uh, but for instance, my, my dad has, you know, kind of li- aside from going to college in Michigan, he has lived and worked in the same, um, gosh, 30 mile radius or so for mm-hmm, 65 mm-hmm. years. Uh, so I wonder if I got it from him and I, uh, really <laughs> needed to just get outside of my comfort zone and, and go on an adventure, I guess. Um, so here we are in England. So I just have to know, you know, not, not looking for some deep spiritual answer here. What is it like to be an American finding himself for a very extended time in Britain? What's it like being with the Britons? Uh, I mean, overall, it's great. I have really enjoyed it. It's, it's hard to, you know, we have the privilege of living in Oxford, which is not just England, but a yeah, very yeah, storied, yeah. historical and vibrant and, um, just incredible. And also a very global, uh, community, I should say people from all over mm-hmm. the world here. I think so, they call man, it the Chicago of England. I'm sorry. They, they, they sure do. They sure do. <laughs> I am pretty sure <laughs> that no one, or maybe C.S. Lewis, made that claim. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been a really rich and and wonderful experience. I really can't. I mean, we could talk about details, and I'm happy to happy okay, okay, to just unpack give me, it. Yeah, give me what, what yeah, do you me, what do you miss the most? And hmm. what have you found unexpectedly that you enjoy the most? Oh, sh- wow, that's great. Oh, I got to say I miss American food. Um, mm-hmm. England is not a kind of culinary, dest- global culinary destination. I mean, the fish and chips, it's great. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the meat pies, it's all just kind of like cozy comfort food. Mm-hmm. Um, and it doesn't branch much outside of salt and pepper on that kind of seasoning scale right, yeah, of yeah. things. So, and, and Brits are, you know, more or less aware of this. They have their things, but Brits in my experience, um, you know, there's some pride in the kind of distinctive English cuisine such as it is, but they get that they're not, they're not like no one's yeah, yeah. moving to England and raving about the food. So okay, I, well, well, uh, well, pause, pause on that. And, and sure. I know this, uh, Nobody is probably going to care about this, but I do, and they're not here to stop me. Uh, Nate and I were in Edinburgh, <laughs> yeah, what three years ago, Nate? Four, I think three so. Years? Yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah. I was surprised by how much I enjoyed. Like there were places I had some of the best burgers I had ever had. Oh, interesting. So was that just an Edinburgh? Did I miss? Because I hear people make those statements about British food, but I found that was not the case in Edinburgh. Mm. I was delighted for the five days we were there. Yeah, I'm happy for you. Um, the <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you can, I'll just say it takes some weeding out to get to the good burgers. Um, yeah. And mm-hmm. um, there, man, I miss, I miss American pizza. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. So yeah, you yeah. can get like the more European uh, or Italian style pizza, you know, the, the kind of fork and knife stuff, which is good. Like mm-hmm. I got nothing mm-hmm. bad to say about it, but, uh, and you it's can get like, Giordano's. it's not, it's not. And yeah. you, you can get like Domino's here, 
But um, for me, actually, it's the Chicago uh, Tavern pizza that I really miss. Um, So this is the lesser known Chicago pizza. I mean, I love Deep Dish as well. But Mm -hmm. the lesser known stuff is like uh, Rosati's and Papa Saverio's. And there's a lot of local places um, Mm kind of in and around Chicago land that do this just incredible square cut uh, thin crust pizza. And man, oh. I miss that stuff. So you can't, you you just can't get good pizza here. Um, that, and I just, I just love with your level of expertise that this is what we're talking about. I yeah, here we are. That's delighting me. <laughs> well, you that's asked what I missed. I know. So, yeah. I love it. So I often say, I often say pizza and uh, Mexican. Uh, you can't mm-hmm. get, you know, Mexican restaurants exist, but an American buddy of mine, I think, said it best when he said, the Mexican food in England tastes like it was made by someone who had like heard about Mexican food and had it described to them and thought like, Oh yeah, I can buy the ingredients for that and do and put it together. Um, so yeah, the authentic Mexican, even like Americanized Mexican or Tex-Mex, all of the above. It's, it's very much uh, subpar here in my humble opinion. Um, okay. So what so if, I missed have you that. been surprised? And then, oh, and what? then is there another? Um, no, that's, that's, trans- I was okay. about to tran- I, I was yeah, about to do so. the exact transition you were you were well, prompting me for. Well, there you okay. go. Something I've been surprised by that I've liked. I've actually it was not the case for the first nine months or so, but I've become endeared to the weather. Um, really? Yeah. Yes, I had, and this was a COVID thing. This was a being away from family thing. This was a uh, you know everything is virtual and mm-hmm. it's just it's just terrible. Uh, thing, but I dealt with a m- probably more significantly than I have in my life a, a bout of depression my first year here, and the mm-hmm. weather was a big part of that. There were these mm-hmm. there are these stretches and where you just don't see the sun for you know days on end, and mm-hmm. that's not entirely dissimilar from uh, like winter in Chicago, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, for mm-hmm. example, it'll be very cold and very cloudy for a long time. But here it's it's cold and cloudy and wet. And man, yeah. there's something about the way the wet just like gets in your bones. Ironically mm-hmm. worse than like the deep cold that I'm used to growing up. And mm-hmm. you do get these breakthrough days of, yeah, it's bitter cold, but at least the sun's out in yeah. uh, the Midwest uh, United States. And But I've kind of come full circle on it where now they're like the ch- the – the charming kind of moody English rain. It's not usually heavy rain or downpour, Mm -hmm. but it's just kind of, it's like more of a Pacific Northwest thing. And my wife is from Portland, Oregon. So she was like endeared to it. She was endeared to it from go. And I took a little convincing, but yeah, I I find myself surprisingly going outside sometimes when it's just kind of wet and dreary, you know, quote unquote, Mm -hmm. London, England, kind of weather yeah. and i'm like oh this is so charming i like this uh so that's been a surprise <laughs> nice it still it still wears on me sometimes but uh yeah, yeah, yeah. it's there's something something about it so you are in oxford mm-hmm. uh working on a doctorate yes uh in new testament is that true correct yes new testament okay and you have uh, a a long-standing interest in studying masculinity so, yeah. yeah, so let's talk about 
So let's, New Testament let's start. Masculinity, yeah. It, it just, yeah, that New Testament masculinity that popped out to me when I was reading mm. about you, because I don't think I've had a single conversation in my whole life entitled New Testament masculinity. Where do you even start with explaining to us what that means? Sure. Well, first, if there are any New Testament scholars listening or aspiring New Testament scholars, I don't know if that would be the case. I should say my primary research interest is not on masculinity, ironically, okay. uh, in, the, okay. in the New Testament. So that's not what I'm writing my dissertation about. So it's it's uh, relative to my kind of scholarship or budding scholarship. It's mm-hmm. a bit more of a side thing, which okay. probably isn't relevant to anyone else listening, but I don't want to like present myself as an expert on the kind of scholarly topic of New Testament masculinity criticism is what it would be called. So let's but, have us let's have us a pedestrian conversation yeah, yeah, about very, New Testament very, yes. masculinity. So I think in in the kind of scholarly conversation, as it seems to me. The kind of New Testament masculinities criticism, as it's sometimes called, is actually kind of a later development out of the feminist movement. So the feminist Mm -hmm. movement, um, you know, shook the world in all sorts of ways and is continuing to do so, Um, but including like biblical scholarship. So there Mm -hmm. are, um, you know, a handful of well-known kind of trailblazing biblical scholars that kind of took a feminist lens to look at the new Testament, but uh, you know, kind of looking at the biblical text through this lens of, well, what's a woman's experience in reading this or how might a woman process this? Or how do we deal with the fact that these are all male authors, all these questions that people are raising Mm -hmm. Um, only relatively recently have people then turned around to say, well, what if we actually focus on what the new Testament perspective on masculinity is, what it teaches about masculinity, what, what are the assumptions of the authors about what it means to be masculine or the the cultural context. That's much more of an emerging conversation. Whereas the feminist conversation is, is more robust. I would say. Would would Um, I, mm -hmm. would I be right in assuming that most of what you just said revolves around the epistles and particularly Paul and not so much the narrative, gospels, or acts. Well, yeah, well, both actually. So the okay. epistles, a lot of times, you will focus in on what's called the household codes, which are right, right. the kind of most robust conversations about gender and and uh, quote unquote gender roles, and the husband is X and the wife is X, and they ought to relate to each other these ways. So those are kind of like lightning rods for controversy in term mm-hmm. in the New Testament, um, you know, passages in First Peter and Ephesians five and <clears throat> and elsewhere. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but some of the stuff that I'm that stuff to me is a bit more done to death. I would I would argue <laughs> like people mm-hmm. think what they're going to think about it and. People will argue back and forth about the right way to interpret this and kind of nobody's convinced one way or the other. You're kind of in your your trench or in your position and no one's going to talk yeah. you out of it, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Um, the stuff that I find more interesting and actually where I focus some of my thinking is more on the narrative stuff, more mm-hmm. on um, the stuff that isn't directly talking about gender, but the way that we see, quote unquote, masculinity modeled 
um, mm-hmm. by Jesus, uh, by Paul, by others in the New Testament, and how that might have either conformed or challenged or downright rejected or even perhaps revised the masculine values of the ancient world, whether Jewish or Roman. Um, mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of really interesting stuff can, there. Can we start with Jesus? How yeah, was Jesus, so, how was his masculinity defined through the narratives of the gospel? Well, I think there has been a movement, and I imagine some you know men in the audience may you know, have this as part of their story has been really influential or shaped them in really positive ways or perhaps some negative ways. There have been movements in the church uh, and in kind of American Christianity in particular, I would say, to kind of make Jesus into this kind of macho, rough and tumble, uh, Mm -hmm. like hyper-masculine guy. Um, And I got to say, you know, and this just this kind of like – Jesus got pissed and flipped over tables one time. Yeah, so I yeah. there so I kind of use this as to, yeah. license to kind of be an asshole to people if yeah. I feel like there's a righteous cause there. Oh man, um, absolutely. We I, I worked at a church for 14 years that behind the stage was a huge stained glass window with Jesus with the biggest pecs, like 400 yes. pound bench presser. We called him make me stumble Jesus, but I'm following <laughs> you. <laughs> no, I think that's right. And I think so I think so many of these, I'll say this hyper-masculine Jesus that uh, conforms to kind of a lot of yeah, like post-Victorian England and then like 1950s America and like cowboy tropes and all of these sorts of things. I think it's actually much more about our cultural context than it is about what was going on in the text or in the ancient world. Um, but a lot is made out of the fact that like Jesus was a carpenter. So that makes him into some like, huge badass apparently. And I, mm-hmm. I just like one, the biblical text makes almost nothing out of the fact that he was likely a carpenter or actually just says he's the son of a carpenter. Um, and then similarly, I think this entire episode where Jesus, you know, turns over the tables in the temple is kind of like made to be the essence of his personality, where it's just like Jesus got pissed and he like, didn't give a shit what anyone thought. And um, which, you know, in some way maybe is true. <laughs> Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, just this kind of like, yes, there's Jesus's masculinity being expressed Mm -hmm. when he gets angry. And, um, then also I think the glorious appearing of Jesus in late in the book of revelation, where he comes with a sword coming out of his mouth and people are like, yes, Jesus is the warrior and he's going to kill everybody. Um, and I just, man, I just feel like that leaves so much of Jesus on the table and it's a very, very selective reading of Jesus. Um, so Jesus describes himself as gentle and lowly. Um, mm-hmm. He encourages uh, people to be meek. Uh, he says, let the little children come to me. Um, mm-hmm. He uh, says, blessed are the poor in spirits. Uh, he, he cries openly and publicly um, at the death of Lazarus. He um, is very emotionally distraught before the crucifixion. I would say uh, I would read that as genuinely afraid. Mm -hmm. Um, And um, there was one other thing I was going to point to. And he's also kind of like reclusive sometimes. Like he, Mm -hmm. is that the right word? Uh, He, 
Yeah, I think it is yeah. the right word. He he goes so off by himself. Retired and, off to pray. Yeah, sure. Yes, yeah. exactly. He goes off by himself, and he's not this kind of. You know, everyone wants to model everything that they would count as Christian off of Jesus, but Jesus doesn't strike me as this kind of like. Yeah, he challenged, you know, whoever would, you know, a lot. so often we define, I think, in Christian circles, masculinity in terms of leadership, which I actually don't think is a helpful way to define it. Uh, and then we're like, Jesus is a man. What does Jesus's leadership look like? And Jesus, mm-hmm. when he's defining leadership for his disciples, you know, the Gentiles, uh, their leaders lord it over them. But then he tell, tells his followers, not so with you. Uh, mm-hmm. The first will be last. And if anybody wants to lead, they should act like a servant. And um, yeah, so we can start there. Uh, I think there's a really just rich and robust and varied um, picture of Jesus that uh, is not necessarily this kind of like badass warrior necessarily, um, but actually challenges a lot of both our contemporary values that we that we might associate with with uh you know ideal manhood whatever that means and um then of course he was unmarried i think so you know masculinity is so often framed up in terms of kind of like rites of passage and attaining to quote-unquote true manhood and i think one of the most common rites of passage uh, particularly among christians is getting married and having children and jesus did neither of these things um, and well, not, not to mention yes to the married and having children, but certainly sexual prowess. Yes. hundred percent. And when you take out marriage in that context, you're taking out all sexual prowess. Yes. So sexual conquest in the broader culture and sexual prowess and achievement and attainment and whatever, uh, is a huge masculine kind of ideal and narrative within our contemporary cultural context. And, you know, post me too, that's, being discussed and revised and you know people are working through that but i think in the church you're exactly right we're like okay well you know kind of sexual conquest and promiscuity is not a christian value like this is a mm-hmm. kind of a madman thing but we i think do transpose oftentimes that kind of sexual conquest into like a christian key and make it about successfully kind of like wooing dating and you know settling down with a wife and that's kind of your your sexual badge of honor and you know it, it, in the kind of bible college context like this is the thing that like this is like most people are trying <laughs> with, mm-hmm. successfully or not trying successfully or not to remain abstinent outside of the context of marriage and then like getting to marriage is like making you know, yeah. and I and I think that's kind of like a sign of a certain type of masculine attainment, a masculine glory, or something like that. And mm-hmm. uh, Jesus does not participate in that narrative at all, which is really interesting to me. And yeah, is that is. in in contrast, in stark contrast, with the culture of his day, the Jewish culture and the Roman culture? Yeah, I mean, and it it's varied. There is. Um, I'll say certain philosophical traditions, you know, there are um, expressions of stoicism and other philosophical traditions that will articulate an ideal 
that is unmarried, actually, um, mm-hmm. as, a, as a certain mm-hmm. type of kind of masculine ideal that has rejected the bodily passions and bodily pleasures. Um, mm-hmm. And that's a thing that exists in the ancient world for sure. And I think you can actually see certain echoes of that type of thing in what the Apostle Paul says about singleness in yeah. um, 1 Corinthians 7. Well, at mm-hmm. the same time, he's fighting against the Gnostic idea of everything which, of the flesh. Which is brain. what's so fascinating about that passage to me, is that Paul does not go all the way and say marriage is evil, sex is bad, which there were certainly cultural voices that would have said such a thing. And in fact, yielding to bodily pleasure or being subject to bodily pleasure, you know, in our cultural context, we associate kind of this out of control hyper erotic you know mm-hmm. virility or something like that we associate that with a certain type of masculinity in the ancient world actually it was considered feminine to be i don't know uh trying to think of a delicate way to say it like subject to your passions that was right. considered not manly um, yeah yeah i think so okay. yeah. um and men, a certain like masculine virtue was expressed on the one hand with a certain kind of like rising above passion. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, men expressed their power and dominance and masculinity through their sexuality um, in the sense where like subjecting others to your, you know, I don't mean to get too graphic, but like penetration mm-hmm was Mm -hmm. considered like a masculine expression. And you can see why, you know, people would get there anatomically speaking. Am I I wrong? I I seem to remember years ago that homosexuality in Rome was only looked down upon or illegal at certain points if you were the person on the bottom. If you were the person penetrating, then that wasn't the same thing. Yeah, I, I'm not an expert. I don't know if it was ever illegal, but you're right to to bring up the fact that there was this dynamic at play where mm-hmm. there was like the being on the bottom was considered the inferior, quote unquote, and because inferior, therefore feminine mm-hmm. and because feminine, mm-hmm. therefore inferior, like this all goes together. There's a superiority associated with a higher level of masculinity and an inferiority associated with lower levels of masculinity and femininity. So Mm -hmm. um, men would call each other womanish in certain contexts as, you know, that's, that's an insult. insult? Yes. And, 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 um, you know, indulgence in passions in kind of a not contained way was considered Mm -hmm. womanish. So that's a, that's a very different cultural kind of concept. So, but there's um, a thread, what we have today beyond the sexual, we're talking about a culture back then where domination yes, meant a lot. And mm-hmm. so the way you're talking about Jesus, the parts that sometimes stay on the table are the lowly, are the meek, is the withdrawn or more uh, introverted, those yeah. types of things that that must have felt pretty countercultural as far as masculinity. I think so. That's what I would argue. And I so I'll, I'll mention two things here. First is I think you're right to put on the way put put emphasis on the way the early Christian movement de-emphasizes power and domination as a kind of unqualified good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, that would have made Christianity feel very kind of passive and feminine in its earliest context. Um, and I, you know, I don't mean to, I don't use feminine in kind of a, a kind of objective way, but Mm -hmm. to certain listeners, hearers in the Roman context, like you're talking about hanging out with the poor and giving away your possessions and, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe even not getting married. Is there any masculine virtue left in this thing? Like that's how it would have, that's how it might've struck people. And then, um, you know, powerfully, the Apostle Paul says in the early chapters of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, that God has chosen the weak things mm-hmm. of this world to yeah. shame the strong. So there's mm-hmm. an, like a radical flipping going on here in, in the Christian message. And then similarly, Jesus, you know, the first shall be last and whoever would be first among you must be your servant. There's just a complete turning upside down of the world. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not blessed are the dominant or the the powerful. Mm-hmm. The meek will inherit the earth. So that's big thing number one, I want to say. Big thing number two, we were talking about kind of, um, you know, these dynamics with penetration and uh, loss of bodily autonomy is another big part of it. You know, to be, to have control of your body and yourself is considered very masculine. And then to be controlled by others is to be emasculated and womanized or feminized. Um, Mm. So incredibly, you know, if you're thinking of a model of Jesus is a model of masculinity, Jesus willingly, you know, at least according to the gospel narrative, Mm. um, subjects himself to crucifixion, which was designed to be maximally emasculated. Right. Right. Yeah. Because your complete loss of bodily autonomy. This is not a powerful person that is being crucified. This is a pathetic person that is being crucified. And uh, it is also acted out and symbolized by the fact that you have stakes literally penetrating your body. Mm -hmm. Um, So Jesus is on display, literally, with his cultural kind of masculinity completely eviscerated um and i think we and our we can lose sight of this a little bit because we have the kind of like heroic death narrative when we think about jesus on the crucifixion Mm -hmm. and it's not entirely dissimilar from like someone who died in battle well that's very heroic and that's masculine in a certain way this is you know this is not the hero dying in battle this is the guy who lost the battle and is was not man enough to go down fighting and instead is being strung up and humiliated in front of everyone. This is not a manly person. You would never think manly when you look at someone being crucified. So you're saying that because to endure the cross, he had to scorn the shame of the cross, Mm -hmm. something like that. Something like that. Yeah. I've heard that somewhere before. (laughs) <laughs> and I think we can lose, uh, yeah, in, in this, we got to talk about the crucifixion when we talk about Jesus and masculinity, because it completely turns the whole paradigm upside down, it seems to me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, some of what you're saying it sounds awful familiar, mm-hmm. though in different words, to how we define sexuality, or sexuality. I've got sex on the mind now, yep. all this talk. <laughs> uh, masculinity now, uh, with 
domination, who can be loud, who can be tough, those types of things. Yes. But then we get the pushback and phrases like toxic masculinity mm-hmm. coming up. How how do you define toxic masculinity? Is there a set definition of that? Yeah, well, you can find one if you really want to. You know, if you Google it, you can find something, I think, uh, excuse me, Oxford English Dictionary or something like that will have something. And it will be, excuse me again, it will be along the lines of, uh, you know, a cultural uh, expression of maleness that is emotionally repressed or uh, sexually aggressive, um, you know, macho, mm-hmm. you know, all of these things that in our cultural moment, we're kind of having this conversation about, you know, many people are like, that's all bad. And many people are like, no, they're actually like good, virtuous, like things that men contribute on this list or something like that. Um, I, in my book, I define it in terms of dehumanization. So that toxic word has like, you think poison, you think something that um, gets into your system and makes you ill or makes you sick or something like that. So it's, if it doesn't kill you, it weakens you or it makes you sick or something like that. So um, I define toxic masculinity as an expression of male embodiment that dehumanizes others or, and, or dehumanizes the self. So uh, a toxic masculinity is a way of living out your maleness, your male embodiment that dehumanizes, uh, dehumanizes is what I would, how I would define Mm. it. Mm. Okay. Can I, can I just throw out my issues with this phrase? My daughter and I had a long talk about this a few weeks ago. Great. Quite a passionate (laughs) conversation. I got too passionate. Uh, so we had to, I have some issues, I have some issues with it as well. So you're not, you're not, uh, I, I, you know, I know the book's titled that, but so, so I'm, I'm going to throw this out and then you just tell me what I'm missing or Or maybe I'll just say thumbs up. So (laughs) I, I don't, I first don't like tying the word toxic to masculine because that's such an overarching idea. Yes. And then when it's defined by people, it goes to the specifics. Like yes. if a guy does this, where I'm like, mm. well, can't we just say that's bad and people shouldn't mm-hmm. do it? Mm-hmm. And if a woman does it, it's also bad. It'll have mm-hmm. a different form, but it'll be bad. But by having such a, a generalized two words, the word toxic yeah. is super generalized, but really bad. Loaded, and then yeah. it's super loaded. And then For the sure. word masculine is something that we're, we're hoping has a lot of good qualities. But yeah, th- so it just, I guess, as my daughter and I talked about, it, I just kept thinking, can't we just say this behavior is bad? Don't do that. That's mm-hmm. not what that's not what a, a man or a loving man should be doing with another person. Uh, and also. You know, I, I want to bring women into it too, just saying like, this is a human experience. Don't treat yes. people badly. So I, I think if I'm summarizing my struggle with it, it is just this huge generalized loaded thing. Yeah. So 
I'll react to both halves of that. I One, my biggest concern with the phrase, such as it is, is that it can be heard. And I think a lot of critics of the phrase or people who say we shouldn't use it that way would say something along the lines like masculinity isn't toxic. Like mm-hmm. men are are good, you know, created in the image of mm-hmm. God. And that, I think, honestly, very few people, maybe that's not true. My sense is that few people who use the phrase toxic mis- masculinity are implying that it is bad to be male. But the trouble with the phrase is that many people will hear it that way. Mm-hmm. So I think it invites a certain type of qualification and definition um, because it is certainly not a, uh, you know, socially expedient thing to say that like all the men around here are terrible and this is bad. And, you know, we're kind of washing our hands of this half of the human race, like forget y'all that it's hopeless. That's not, I think a productive direction to move the conversation. Um, and then from a Christian perspective, you would want to just soundly reject the belief or teaching or attitude towards men. That is, what you know, if discriminatory is the right word or not, I'm not sure. But a, a prejudice against maleness, as just in a unique way, hopelessly broken or bad or evil. Um, for men again are created in the image of God, and it is a wonderful and beautiful thing to be a man. So that's part one. Part two is the fact that I think it is right to say that while it's not bad to be male, there are, in fact, it's very good to be male. There are ways of expressing and living out that maleness that are harmful and Mm -hmm. unhelpful and dehumanizing is the language that I focus on. Mm-hmm. And when those ways of living out maleness kind of coalesce into a cultural script around masculinity that then men or boys are socialized into and encouraged, whether by just kind of broader cultural forces or their fathers or their role models or whatever the case may be, to live into that narrative, it, I think, sets men and women up for certain types of dehumanization and harm. So when I use the phrase, um, you know, I think, I think healthy uses of the phrase, perhaps I should say, mm-hmm. are trying to identify the way certain ways of expressing maleness and male embodiment have kind of coalesced into cultural scripts that are, are harmful. And I'll I'll say in in defense of this conversation, uh, I remember Nate and I did a three part deal on um, privilege because mm. that word bugged the shit out of me, and so <laughs> so we talked about it. And I think though I have that same knee jerk emotional reaction the phrase toxic masculinity, it is a word being used by people. And so it must be talked about or Mm -hmm. else we're just trying to remove our ideals from 
our culture Broader, yes. and i would say beyond that as christians for anyone that's like me and cringes at that word mm-hmm. we deserve having to have this conversation yes. because people have dehumanized women and wives by cherry picking verses and forgetting that every husband was supposed to be the chief servant of his house mm. and and so i th- think that we as Christian men don't have a leg to stand on to not have this conversation and unpack it. Yes. Because Christianity has behaved in ways that have been dehumanizing and have in some ways brought about the conversation itself. Yes. So I'm glad you're doing this. Yeah. And I think it is right to get curious about like any sort of cultural discourse around you. Like if you have like a knee-jerk negative reaction about it, I do I think that's exactly the correct response is like enter that conversation and try to understand what about it is um is bothering you i suppose which is not to say like you need to adopt the terminology but i think i think getting into that is great so your book is not about toxic masculinity though it's about non-toxic masculinity (laughs) organic non-toxic masculinity i think No pesticides, no pesticides were used. No pesticides in this masculinity. Yeah. Uh, so tell us about that. What, what, I mean, I'm thinking it's coming from all your New Testament thoughts about a bigger view of what Jesus was exemplifying, sure. but tie that together for us. Yeah. So my book is, it's a, you know, the, the subtitle of the book is Recovering Healthy Male Sexuality. Um, mm-hmm. So, mm, while I grant that the kind of cultural conversation that's ongoing around masculinity has a lot more to do than just sexuality. And by sexuality, mm-hmm. I mean, you know, like romance, marriage, sex, eroticism, mm-hmm. sexual desire, all of that. So this is a book about the way men relate to that part of themselves. And mm-hmm. um, in the first half of the book, I, you know, and I weave my own story throughout. Um, I talk about the uh, sexual abuse crisis in the broader culture, um, but also in the church. I, it seems that there mm-hmm. you don't go a week without hearing about some pastor or Christian celebrity or you know, not even a celebrity, just some guy who was yeah. um, you know, whether caught, doing something untoward or lying to his congregation about a porn habit or whatever the case may be. These Mm -hmm. kind of stories and, you know, scandals just keep coming Um, along with a long list of cover-ups associated with child abuse Mm -hmm. and all sorts of things like this. Mm -hmm. So that's the kind of entry into the conversation for me. And I, draw some connections in the early chapters of the book between the way Christians have, um, you know, conservative white evangelicals mostly have responded and reacted to the sexual revolution of the sixties and seventies. Um, and, you know, for folks, my age, this is often talked about with the term purity culture, Mm -hmm. um, you know, a popular, movements and you know lots of emphasis on quote unquote saving yourself for marriage and 
marketed mm-hmm. to teens and young people and really, really wildly popular books. And I argue that within those books, as it relates to sexuality, <clears throat> there is a deficient and sub-Christian vision of what it means to be male. And uh, I talk about, of course, women are being dehumanized, but down upstream from that, I should say, is a subhuman articulation of what it means to be a man. So, um, and, you know, Christians didn't invent toxic masculinity, but Mm -hmm. I think we are uh, responsible for the ways we see it showing up and the ways it kind of gets a foothold in, in Christian communities and in Christians lives. Um, and I argue that if in certain Christian contexts and ways of speaking and thinking about sex, women are sexual objects or dehumanized or their bodies are spoken about in ways that are disrespectful um, so if women are sexual objects, I argue that men are sexual animals. Or if we have a tendency to over-sexualize women's bodies, I think we have a tendency to over-sexualize men's minds is another way mm-hmm. I talk about it. Or if women are um, – if men are sex machines and then women are machines for sex mm-hmm. and men are kind of ravenous, instinctual animals and women are – things to be consumed, you know, and all of this is dehumanizing language on both sides of the equation. Um, so the kind of like every man's battle narrative, and, you know, this is a very influential book that a lot of people I'm sure oh, yeah. have heard of and read. I, you know, I worry that the way this book kind of frames a like hyper erotic expression of maleness as just default, inevitable this is just what it means to be a dude your brain works this way you look at the world this way you kind of have this hyper erotic lens i worry that becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy sometimes Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um Mm -hmm. and if men young men in particular are told like yep guys you're gonna grow up and you're gonna see the girls and you're just gonna be obsessed you won't be able to look away and and like Mm -hmm. imagine you know i heard that when i was young And Mm -hmm. imagine hearing that before puberty and you kind of see your sexuality as this terrifying thing that's going to eat you alive coming over the hill um, Mm -hmm. as you're growing up. And um, yeah, so that's the kind of critical edge of the first part of the book. I can pause there and get into where I go from there, but, you know, happy to hear thoughts or reactions or questions on what I've said so far. That's kind of the problem. It seems to me. As oh, I yeah. It up. yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, and man, uh, do I second your reservations about that whole narrative? You know, the, the guy who biologically, you know, by necessity, gen- at the genetic level, yes. needs to have sex, uh, you know, every 72 hours or he's going to explode. Yes. And he's exactly right. Uh, 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 and he is, you know, I believed that. Yes. Me too. Well, I got into recovery and they told me sex is optional. I thought they were crazy. Yes. Because that's not what I'd ever heard in church. Yes. I'd yes. never heard. I'd never heard that it was a gift, but I thought it was a fundamental human need, you know, as essential as air and water. Yes. Well, for, for men in particular. Yes. For yes. men. Like for a, men. A, ma- yes. a male that was the story. Need. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And I had a, yeah. And I narrate this in one of the chapters of the book. I had a really profound um, exchange with a therapist in, um, and a couples therapy session that my wife and I are in, were in um, a few, you know, some years ago yeah. where she, um, you know, through a series of circumstances and revelations that she's happy for me to, to share. And she, she actually opens the book with a preface uh, not- noting that uh, come to find that she is a survivor of childhood sexual abuse. And we weren't mm-hmm. thinking in those categories. She wasn't thinking in those categories, but man, we had struggled in our intimate life um, mm-hmm. for the early years of our marriage. And, um, as we're kind of processing this, working through it, talking with the therapist, uh, wisely, the therapist had recommended, you know, this isn't going to work for Shelby. You guys should just kind of put your intimate life on pause. And I didn't have a category for that. I didn't have a category for like, okay, yeah, yeah. Like, of course, you know, I'm, I'm trying to love my wife. I want to be as supportive for her. Her world's been turned upside down. This is really, really traumatic stuff. Um, but in, on my side, I was just like wrestling with that on the other, on the one hand. And then on the other hand, just being like, man, I haven't had sex in weeks. I'm going crazy. I I feel like this is, this is terrible. Mm -hmm. Um, and feeling just like shit because I felt that way. Like, come on, Zach, like you can't like, like give your wife some space. You're just Mm -hmm. like so obsessive about this. Um, but man, that was the, that was the narrative that was fed to me. And that was, you know, through uh, ironically through like pornography on the one hand, and then like Christian resources about fighting pornography on the other mm-hmm, hand, mm-hmm, both gave mm-hmm. me this kind of like narrative of this as an insatiable male need. So to get back to that therapist session, Shelby was having a hard time with this because this, you know, women receive this as it's, it's their duty. The like duty, this is yeah, the yes. wifely yeah. duty, you know, right. again, a uh, uh, kind of shitty reading of first Corinthians seven, their wifely duty to serve their husband in this way or else, because this is the way men are, which is not what first Corinthians seven says. But uh, Shelby was expressing like, man, I feel terrible. Like I, like I'm working through this and I just feel like I can't do this with Zach and I just need space. I don't want him to like wander. I don't want him to get back into porn, but man, I just feel like I'm letting him down. And the therapist just said, and I narrate all this in the book, the therapist just said, hey, Shelby, this is so great. I can tell you really care about Zach. You love him so much. And this is really great. But but like, he can survive without sex. Like, he really can. Mm-hmm. And then she just like turned and looked at me and said, hey, Zach, like, you can survive without sex. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I like, of course, I knew that was true. But I was like, also shocked. <laughs> Yeah, and right, on another sure. part of me, because I was like, "Well, yeah, but yeah, I guess I can." Like, I've never, I've never thought about that that way. Like, I've never tried. Mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, so, man, that was the beginning of a long journey for me. Um, yeah, and uh, that, in many ways, culminated with uh, with this book. And and you know, it's not like Shelby and I have it all figured out. You know, we're still working through stuff, and we're still growing and healing and all of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but this was a big part of it. But to bring it sure. back to that earlier conversation that I never heard growing up when it uh, concerning Jesus' life, mm. that he he did not take a big stand on being an an unmarried person. It wasn't like that was the lesson, but he was no. unmarried. Yep, and and which seems incredibly celestial in itself with the whole oh. 
yeah, don't worry about the whole wife and husband thing in heaven because you're not going to be given to marriage. Be like the angels, like love and intimacy will not require this. And so it must not be this eternally important thing. Yes. And so both of those things combined where here's Jesus living out life where he's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to have relationship and intimacy with all of these people I'm with. Including women. Including including women. women. Yeah. I'm thinking about the women that are with him, the men, Mm -hmm. his disciples, and I don't need this to be a part of it. Man, that just makes me sad for all of the kids who are hearing what you're talking about, Nate, but aren't hearing Mm -hmm. uh, almost the because it's not made as an issue through Jesus's life in the gospels it's almost yeah. a shrug yeah yeah and and i think in part we need the shrug like oh yeah sure you'll feel certain things and yes. sure you have certain desires and it's good to get married and sex is awesome yeah. yes it's not the most important thing to intimacy but it's cool yeah. if it if it had a little more of a shrug i think that yeah. would have been more helpful in no, my I, group experience Hundred percent. I totally agree, and it's it's a decentering of sex and sexual desire and sexual fulfillment, you know. And this is this is a broad cultural criticism, but I want to bring it back to the log that's in the church's eye on this. You know, post sexual revolution, I think that the the culture, broadly speaking, has just made sexual quote unquote fulfillment so central to the human experience, and it's all just like, what is you know the the kind of orgasm under the best circumstances is like what it means to be like fully alive. Um, Mm -hmm. And Christianity, I actually think rather than like rejecting the centering of sexuality, this kind of sex is everything actually just kind of baptized it and made like Jesus and like traditional sexual ethics or whatever, a path to your best sex life. And Mm -hmm. I think sometimes it would be helpful to just like look at what the biblical text does with sex, you know, it talks about it and there's song of songs is there, but it doesn't center it in the way I think we often do. And so, so importantly, I, I like that language of just like a shrug um, with, with Jesus and certainly in the way he lived and modeled his life where it's just like, okay, well this wasn't part of Jesus's experience, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a sexual being. Um, in fact, to think, think that Jesus somehow was like immune to sexual desire uh, is kind of heretical <laughs> because yeah, we yes. uh, believe that right. Jesus is fully human. And I right. think if we can't think about Jesus in um, sexual or even, you know, even like quasi erotic terms, like Jesus was someone who would have known about, and to some extent have to some extent have like experiences with erotic and sexual desire. That's what it means to be human. That's just a human being. But if we like can't hold our image of Jesus together with like the created goodness of human sexuality, we're actually kind of like denying the incarnation. This is a, this is an early Christian heresy called docetism where we say, mm -hmm. well, Jesus looked like a sexual being, but he wasn't actually a sexual being. This is just a God kind of plain dress up sort of thing. But maybe even beyond that, it's, it feels awkward thinking of Jesus being a sexual being yes. having sexual desires in the same way we're embarrassed by thinking that our parents ever had sex yeah, or mm. thinking that God is watching or aware when we're having sex sure. with our spouse. And so 
putting that on Jesus, removing that from Jesus, yes, is actually heaping our own sexual shame. Hundred percent. Where it's so central and being yes. pursued, and at the same time so shameful. Hundred percent. All, all of that elevates it so far away from the shrug. And yeah. then we get to the stuff that the Bible does talk a lot about, which is the inappropriate use of sex is so damaging to our own souls and to the mm-hmm. hearts of others. First Corinthians six, yes. Yeah. And the Yeah. I mean, the way I would I would say that succinctly, I mean, just love everything you said, but if we have a hard time thinking of Jesus as a sexual being, you know, an embodied male, you know, with a penis. That probably says more about us and our sexual shame than anything that's actually mm-hmm. coming to us from from Scripture. Um, mm-hmm. So if we have a hard time thinking about that, you know, I'm that that I think says something about our cultural context and our own experience of our sexuality. Another thing I wanted to say about Jesus is that. He was not less human for never having had sex or never getting married or never fathering children. In fact, Mm -hmm. theologically, we would want to say that Jesus was the most human being who ever lived, if you understand Mm -hmm. my meaning there. Because sin is a fracture of our humanity. It's a way of becoming somehow less human. You know, this is the last battle narrative in C.S. Lewis, where as the animals kind of devolve towards hell, I guess, in Lewis's conception, they lose the capacity to speak and things like this. So it's a way of kind of spiraling out of the image of God. And um, I think while the, you know, the image of God and our created goodness is not compromised. um, Well, it is compromised. It's not eliminated by sin. Um, There's a path towards true humanity that we were created for, that Jesus lived out and restores and enables us to live out. So it's really instructive to me in terms of that kind of question of like, how central is sex and eroticism in our conception of what it means to be human? Um, That Jesus never had these types of sexual experiences that we think are so central to what it means to be human, but he Mm -hmm. was more human, the most human, uh, person who has ever lived. That's something I think a lot of us need to sit with for a while. Mm. Nate, how do you how do you ask a question to start wrapping this up as we're reaching that mark? <laughs> Go ahead. I'm putting I, it on you. <laughs> well, here's what I'm saying. I'm not even going to ask a question. I'm just going to say our 35-minute uh, uh, interview, it now stands at 55 minutes, which I think is a testimony to how interesting the topic is and how great the conversation mm. has been. And uh, it's tragic that we have to wrap. Uh, I would like to extract from you, if I could, before we leave, a promise sure. to come back sometime. Yeah, I'd love to. So I feel okay. like I All feel right. like we're not even close. We didn't get to the solution. You just laid out the problem. <laughs> now people have to buy your book. Yeah, well, yeah, <laughs> d- yeah. Feel free to buy the book by all means. Um, okay. I- I can give can, can I give you like I'll try it in like sixty seconds. Oh, a little do bit. it, do you it. You know what? Yeah, okay. yeah. Take, take ninety because we ninety. Are, oh gosh, we're gracious bastards. Oh wow, let's do it. Okay. So I think there is this purity paradigm that so much of us were reared on as it relates to our sexuality, where mm-hmm. there's kind of this Edenic created state where you need to you're 
you're quote unquote pure and you need to maintain that by avoiding sexually illicit behavior. Right. Um, and until you kind of quote unquote make it to marriage. Yeah. And if you fail, um, you're ruined. Yes, actually. Like we kind of talk about forgiveness, but it's kind of like, yeah, yeah. you kind of get the scraps under the table at this point yeah. and your damaged like, goods. You are, sure, right? you are. And I think women got the worst of this, but men, men too, certainly. Mm-hmm. There's this kind mm-hmm. of like idealized kind of like, I've never made a sexual mistake in my wife and now, or in my, in my life rather. And now me and my yeah. wife can go nuts once we're married. And isn't that beautiful? On yeah. one level? We'll never have any kind of baggage or sexual experience <laughs> of shame ever again, which like anybody who's been married for 10 minutes knows that's just yeah. not how that works. Um, and then, uh, so I would try to replace this purity paradigm with a paradigm of growing up. And, mm. uh, this kind of gets to what I was talking about, how Jesus restores, um, Jesus inaugurates through the resurrection. We never talk about the resurrection in conversations about sexuality. We talk about the mm. forgiveness of sins. Jesus, like his death on the cross means your sexual sins can be forgiven. But we don't talk about the fact that Jesus inaugurates a new way to be human. And a new way to be human means there's a new way to be male. So mm. whatever the kind of cultural narrative or the church narrative that you've received about being male is this kind of helplessly, hopelessly um, erotic kind of mm-hmm. vocation that you can never escape. And every man's battle is just trying to keep it locked down until you die. Um, mm-hmm. We can actually live into a different narrative in, in Christ and grow up out of what I would describe as an immature expression of masculine sexuality into a more fully human way of being men as it relates to our sexuality. So it's about growing up into Christ. We see this language all over the new Testament. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I would say the kind of like wallowing in compulsive or addictive sexual behavior and dehumanizing attitudes towards yourself or towards women or towards men, you know, if you're, if you're Mm -hmm. oriented, if you're not, you know, heterosexual or have different Mm -hmm. sexual identity questions or experiences um, this kind of, dehumanizing orientation towards others and growing up into a, a fully human self and treating others as fully human as well. And living into a masculine sexuality that's characterized by the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, Mm -hmm. patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's the, so Maybe you don't need to buy the book after that because that's kind of the whole, the whole thing. Uh, but uh, <laughs> well, hey, just just in case, how and it was can, probably longer than ninety seconds. But yeah, how can people uh, find your book? Find out more about you. See what you're sure. up to. How do they get on that path? Yeah, thanks so much. Um, I have a personal website, ZacharyCWagner.com, uh, Z-A-C-H-A-R-Y. Um, and uh, there's info about the book, a couple other things that I've written here and there. Um, and you can find that there. Of course, you can get on Amazon. It's published with InterVarsity Press. So ivpress.com if you want to get it directly from the source. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in terms of following me and seeing what I'm up to, the place kind of social media that I'm most active on is Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so Zachary C. Wagner is my handle there as well. So folks can find me there. 
Well, we're going to we're going to keep Zach here while we wrap up, but we want to remind you to send your thoughts, your questions, your criticisms or your dad jokes to pirate monk podcast <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> and Nate, this is your part. All right. Well, this is what we remind uh, the listeners of who we are as we sign off. So uh, we've now reached the end of the episode until next time. I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. I'm Zach. Yeah, there you go. I got it. We are your pal. Your pal on the Pirate Monk Podcast. The Pirate Monk Podcast is produced by members of the Samson Society. Send your feedback or questions to piratemonkpodcast at gmail.com. Please give us a five-star review on iTunes and share the podcast with a friend. For more information, please visit samsonsociety.com.